0: This is World Cafe. I'm Raina Durris. Electrical Audio is a two-studio complex that opened in 1997 in Chicago. From the outside, it's an unassuming brown brick building. You can't really see in. There's just a door with a small plaque that says, Electrical Audio. If you didn't know it was there, you'd maybe never guess that it's the headquarters of one of music's most renowned engineers, Steve Albini.
1: So um, should I be doing a sound check now? Should I be doing testing one, two? Testing one, two. Two, two. How many sound men does it take to change a light bulb? Two, two.
0: In addition to his work with his own bands like Big Black. (laughs) And (laughs) Shellac. Steve Albini has engineered albums by The Breeders, PJ Harvey, Jarvis Cocker, and Pixies. To name a few.
1: Where is my mind? Where is my mind? Where well, is my
0: mind? Oh, and he also engineered a little album by Nirvana called In Utero. worked on, by his own estimate, thousands of albums. But you don't need to be as big as Nirvana to get that Steve Albini sound. You can literally just call him up at Electrical Audio. I try very
1: hard not to say no. Um, there, I mean, there are extremely limited, extremely small list of circumstances that would cause me to, say, to decline a session. There are some people that are just extraordinary creeps that I don't want to work with, and there is some art that I don't want to participate in, but that's such a small list of things, such a very small number of, of things. Basically, if someone wants to come in here and make a record with me, I'll do it. I still see my role as being a service one. Like, I'm providing a service to people who want to make records.
0: When we visited Electrical Audio, Steve was dressed in his usual uniform, befitting a person providing a service. Mechanics' coveralls. He looks like he's ready to do manual labor, to get down and get his hands dirty.
1: The studio is an extension of my participation in the music scene as a peer and not as um, uh, a robber baron, not as someone who's trying to extract from the music scene, but as someone who's trying to participate on every level. And one level that I can participate is I can make records. So that's what I've been doing essentially every day since the mid-80s.
0: In 1980, Steve Albini moved to Chicago from Missoula, Montana. He was going to school at Northwestern University, and immediately he threw himself into the city's underground music scene, which was centered around a record store called Wax Tracks.
1: I just would go there whenever I could get away and um, bought every record that looked interesting and talked to everybody with a funny haircut and eventually insinuated myself into the music scene.
0: One way he insinuated himself was by hanging with, and eventually playing with, the guys in one of Chicago's most influential underground punk bands, Naked Raygun.
1: Naked Raygun lived in this coach house, and the basement of that coach house was where they rehearsed, right? Because they had a rehearsal space in their basement, all of their friends had a rehearsal space. There was just a schedule, there was a calendar up on the refrigerator and you would just write your band's name in on the days that you wanted to rehearse and then you could rehearse in the coach house. So many bands made that coach house a kind of clubhouse where they would practice there and hang out there. That sort of welcoming feeling was everywhere in the city. Like I felt that when I was in wax tracks, I felt that when I was at any of the hangout bars. No matter how weird you were, there was somebody there weirder than you, and everybody was cool with all of it.
0: Steve fondly recalls some of the inventive ways Chicago's underground bands got their names out there, like Deerfield Chicago band The Mentally Ill.
1: They never played any shows or anything, but they recorded themselves, and they put out a seven-inch single of uh, a couple of their songs. They had no no one to sell them to like they weren't playing shows they didn't have a record distributor that no one would buy these singles from them but they they went through the trouble of making them so they did a kind of sabotage where they would take their records to like proper record stores and just stuff them in the singles bin and then leave um, so it was a kind of reverse shoplifting vandalism where they would put their records in circulation by force you know the record Store wasn't going to buy their records, so they were just going to make them deal with them anyway. <laughs> there was no, no commercial notion. Uh, you know, no one really worried about trying to make a living off of what they were doing. They just wanted to do it and have other people hear it.
0: It was a tight knit community.
1: There were maybe fifty active musicians. But those 50 active musicians constituted maybe 50 bands as well, because each band shared members with other bands, and there would would be bands that would form for a week and then dissipate. It was just an extremely active, very fertile scene, where everybody was participating on every level.
0: That idea of everyone participating on every level, the excitement for making music, and the do-it-yourself ethos of the underground rock scene in Chicago is something you can actually see inside Steve Albini's studio. For instance, we're standing in the performance space inside the studio. There are instruments and an array of amplifiers and guitar pedals and tons of cables, and then there are the walls. They're made of adobe bricks. Some of those bricks were laid by professional masons, and they're all straight and even. But some were laid by Steve's own crew of punk rock pals. You can see
1: that the the grout lines are all a little cockeyed. Some of the bricks are poking out a little. Uh, things are not exactly plumb and square, Um, But the material, Adobe, is extremely forgiving. Um, You can make amateurish walls that are just as stable and just as strong as professionally laid uh, masonry walls because the material is kind of, it's, it's almost a folk art material.
0: There's a contrast between the folk art imperfection of those adobe walls and Steve's very precise vision for the construction of his ideal studio. He planned out every single inch of electrical audio.
1: So we have an isolating transformer for our electrical system, for example. We have balanced bipolar power throughout the building. That's a very nerdy thing that only one or two of your listeners are going to understand, but they'll be really impressed. (laughs) There's like six electrical engineering nerds right now now who were pulling their chins going, oh, neat. Anyway, um, so most studios are just built using conventional stuff, but um, we had the luxury of doing things kind of um, in minute detail to a very specific standard. Um, the studio didn't, we didn't set a deadline for opening the studio.
0: No deadline. And when it came
1: to a budget... During the building of it, I ran out of money a few times, and I had to sell all my stuff, and sell my house, and sell all my guitars, and sell all my records, and all that sort of stuff. But um, eventually, we got it done.
0: That's right. He ran out of money. Now, you might have thought that the guy with the producer credit on Nirvana's In Utero would be rolling in dough right off on a yacht somewhere. Most engineers and producers take royalties, a cut of the album's profits in perpetuity. If an album gets really, really big, that can sometimes amount to millions of dollars. But Steve Albini does not take royalties. And this is something that surprises some people.
1: I have heard that reaction a lot, that people are surprised that I don't behave and that I don't do things that way. But I think the results speak for themselves. Like most of the people who do what I do have already quit doing it and are doing something else with their lives. And a lot of that may be because their client base ran out, like they didn't have people who wanted to work with them anymore. And if, you, if your business model is that you're gonna make two or three hit records and then live off of them forever, then you know if you don't get those two or three hit records, uh, then your career is kind of done. Me, I, I, like, I enjoy the work. I like doing it. I like coming here every day and making records every day. So it doesn't particularly bother me that I don't get paid millions of dollars for any particular record. I'm going to make other records, and I'll get paid for those as
0: well. So that's fine. So what does working with Steve Albini actually look like? Say you're in a band big or small, and you walk into electrical audio on the first day of your recording session. What happens? Well, it starts with a pad of lined paper.
1: See the yellow legal pad on the coffee table there? Yes. I would take the yellow legal pad and I would hand it to you and I say, can I have a written description of all of the songs that we're going to be recording? In... The most lucky circumstances, you will have prepared such a document already, and you will have a printed copy of it for me already. Um, but if not, we'll go through the we'll go through the songs one by one, and figure out everything that's going to be on that song before we get started recording it. And the reason that you do that kind of inventory is you want to make sure that you don't set things up that are going to be an obstacle later.
0: You got to be prepared so you don't run out of money so you get everything done on time and make the record you want to make. A list on a yellow legal pad may not sound romantic or rock and roll, but it's reality.
1: Like, there was an era when record labels were spending lavishly on productions where some bands got to have this kind of an indulgent experience in the studio. Those days are long gone. Like, there isn't that kind of money being thrown around. And there hasn't been for a long time and especially with my clientele, who are working bands, working musicians, independent and underground artists, who in some cases are literally spending their rent money in order to make a record. They're not gonna waste a half an hour getting the incense set up, you know? (laughs) They're not gonna worry about the frickin' lighting. They're, you know, they spit on their hands and make the record, you know?
0: Making an album is a creative process, but it's also work. And when he's at work, Steve Albini is good at keeping the professional distance he needs.
1: I try very hard not to form opinions about the music that I'm working on. And I don't just mean I try hard not to criticize it. I try hard also not to fall in love with it. Because if you're lost in the music and grooving on it or whatever, then you're not paying attention to the technical stuff that is your job. You're not doing the thing that they're giving you a check for at the end of the session you have to be emotionally quite cold and artistically quite cold about what you're working on. So that, yes, that's a lovely line. Yes, that's a terrific rhyme. Yes, that's a clever drum beat. But I did notice that partway through that, the microphone moved off axis and we lost part of the rack tom or whatever.
0: There are, of course, moments where even Steve has felt starstruck, like when he got to work with Iggy Pop.
1: When he rang the doorbell and I answered the intercom and it was Iggy Pop at my front door to to come here for a month and make a record. That was like a really, an incredible, like I wish I could have found teenage me and had a little conversation with me. You know, whatever you have to go through, it's gonna be worth it. You're gonna get to hang out with the Stooges for a month. I got to spend enough time with them and enough personal time with them that my image of them was validated. Like they turned out to be as interesting and as awesome as I thought they were.
0: it must be a really cool feeling to get to be a part of that art that you love. Yeah, I, it's weird though. I feel like
1: from when you're doing things on a technical level, you don't have any authorship of the music, right? You, you're not responsible for, I didn't play that music. I didn't write that music. I just, you know, made sure it didn't get screwed up going to tape.
0: You know, I talk to a lot of artists and producers, and a lot of the time they'll be like, oh, you know, uh, it's almost like a therapist's relationship. You do whatever you have to to get the right performance out of them. Yeah, I'm not How a, do you see that? Uh,
1: I'm absolutely not a therapist. Uh, I, I have the bedside manner of a refrigerator. <laughs> like, uh, I'm absolutely—I'm a technician. Like, I do the technical side. But I recognize that while people are in the studio, they're in an incredibly vulnerable position.
0: It's not that he thinks about himself as a technician because he doesn't care about the artist. It's quite the opposite.
1: I think the the main point about me being paid sort of normally and I when I say normally I mean the way I'm paid is normal for any other technical person like if you have someone come and fix your dishwasher you pay him for the amount of time that he's working on your dishwasher and then you never see him again and it's fine, right?
0: Yeah. And,
1: and I think that that's a perfectly reasonable, normal arrangement for, uh, for something like that. You need me to do to run the machines and to run the session. So while I'm working, if you're paying for my time, I'm content, right? I don't need you to be beholden to me for the rest of your life for the the fact that I was involved in your session for a couple of days or a couple of hours, you know. And I I think the normalization of the kind of predatory practices of the music business is a great shame of the music scene.
0: You can hear the echo of those days spent in the Chicago underground scene, making punk music, sharing rehearsal space, being a part of something where the end goal isn't just making money, where it's about community.
1: I am the beneficiary of an awful lot of this tradition of engineers teaching each other how to do things, right? And I feel like I have a pretty heavy obligation to share what I know with other people that are interested in doing it. Not for the sake of making protégés or anything, but because I feel like that's how people should treat each other. Like, There's no advantage to having secret knowledge about stuff like that. The world gets better the more people know how to make good records. So I would rather share that information. Anything that I know, anybody else is welcome to. And when I'm working on a session, I encourage the musicians and other people involved in the session, I encourage them to ask questions so that they don't think that I'm doing secret stuff to their music behind their backs. I I want everything to be very above board and very open. And I feel like that attitude has made other people generous to me with their knowledge.
0: In an industry that often focuses on individual success, getting rich, becoming a star, for Steve, the meaning comes from seeing himself as part of something bigger.
1: The community that I joined when I came to Chicago enabled me to continue on with a life in music. I, I didn't do this by myself. I did this as a participant in a scene, in a community, in a culture. And when I see somebody extracting from that rather than participating in it as a peer, it makes me think less of that person. The fact that I built this studio, yes, I have a workplace that I'm very happy to be working in every day. And I work with a crew of guys that I would take a bullet for, like the people that work here, both the employees of Electrical Audio and the bands that come here to work, like. I feel like we are part of a thing and that thing is way more valuable to me than any of the detritus that comes along with it. Like any particular record or gig or guitar or paycheck or whatever. Like. I'm starting to get very old now, right? So like, I. Nor Macdonald once said, know, yeah, I've had more breakfasts than I'm gonna have," and I was like, "Oh man, what a dark thing to think about." But I've had more breakfasts than I'm gonna have, right? So, as I as I'm on the the downslope of that, and I, I realize, like, you know, my participation in all of this is gonna come to an end at some point. And the only thing that I can say for myself is that along the way, it was a cool thing that I participated in. And on the way out, I'm going to make sure that, like, I don't take it with me. You know, like I'm not, I'm not going to try to I'm not going to try to shut the door behind me.
0: It's about 1030 at night when we leave Electrical Audio. Steve is closing up shop and comes outside to lock up while we're still waiting for our ride. He informs us that his car parked right up front is, quote, a piece of crap. He opens the hood, connects something, and the car's lights turn on. He tells us the thing's worth next to nothing. Then he gets in and drives off after a long day's work, still wearing his mechanic's coveralls. (laughs) Thank you so much to Steve Albini, as well as senior producer Kimberly Junod and assistant engineer Will Loftus, and John Semley, who took photos for this session. You can see online at worldcafe.org and on World Cafe's social media at World Cafe. I'm Rena Duris. back in a moment with more World Cafe.